Um, I haven't quite decided which book I'm wanting to walk through next because there's, well, there's a ton of choices, right? Um, I was talking with, talked with some of you guys because some of you guys are a lot, are pretty curious. You guys always want to know what's going to be coming next. Like, which book are you going to do next? Which one are we going to walk through? And I go, well, it's hard because there's a lot of good options. Or you look at one and you're like, wow, this is really good. And it's hard to look at one particular book of the Bible and say, well, I refuse to do this one. I don't like this one. Right? You can't really do that. So still working through it. There's a couple options, whether it's Ephesians, 1 John, Hebrews, you know, all over the place. Um, so this morning what we're going to look at, and kind of actually a little bit of a continuation on one of the main themes from the book of Colossians. If you remember, um, all the way back from February all the way up until now, one of the primary and perhaps the most foundational theme in all of Colossians was Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is superior. And the next question would be, in what ways? And quite simply, Paul makes it clear, in every single way imaginable. Christ is superior. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is before all things. And so this morning we're going to look at this in a little, we're going to narrow the scope a little bit. Um, our text is going to be found in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to walk through verses 1 through 10. The first four verses are going to be a little bit more for context. And we're going to spend more time in 5 through 10. Um, but quite simply this morning, we're going to see Jesus Christ as a superior priest. We've already seen that he is very clearly superior in all ways, but now we're focusing in on one specific area and one that each and every one of us should be incredibly thankful for, that Jesus Christ is a superior high priest. A little bit of background on the book of Hebrews, and some of these themes are things that we've, we've touched on before. Um, and in conversations with many of you and trying to figure out what's next, I say, well, I wanted to go through this book, but I feel like I've already read half of it as cross-references or as parts of other messages. And it's incredible because doing this, you see how incredibly clear it is that all of Scripture is working together. It is completely united, every single part of it, by the same author for the same purpose, to show and magnify Christ. So it's hard to say, well, I don't know if I want to go through this book because I've already mentioned this before. So many of these themes are all intricately woven together, um, which once again is such a beautiful testament to the, to the way that Scripture is put together. But this morning, we're going to look again at the superiority of Christ as our great high priest. Um, some background with the book of Hebrews, it's written to Jewish Christians. The Jewish background that they had, but they are now believers, and they are starting to kind of waver a bit. They've already come out of the old system into the new. They believed upon Christ, but they're still struggling. And I think we can empathize with this a little bit, because at times in our lives, we've probably gone through similar situations where we're, we're tempted to fall away. We're tempted to forget the things that we know, because, well, the old way was just a lot more comfortable and it was a lot easier. The, the understanding that old habits are hard to break, right? You grew up, these people would have grown up in the synagogue hearing all these teachings and memorizing all of the law and all that they would have learned for years and years and years as the core of their learning. And now they've accepted Christ and they've made the turn, but yet there's still remnants of those things which are going to linger. And here the author of Hebrews, who we don't know and we could all speculate, but we'll just say the Spirit to be sure, is writing to them to once again call them to remembrance of the salvation that they have received, to bring them back to this remembrance. He's shown that Christ is a mediator of a new covenant and yet a better one, that even though the old has not been done away with, but Christ has perfectly fulfilled it. And you can look from chapters 1 through 4, and you see this, this argument building towards the superiority of Christ in all things, and then it narrows in 
to the priesthood of Christ. And in chapter 2, he talks about um, being, being careful of not falling away. And in chapter 3, talking about Christ as superior over Moses. Then entering into chapter 5, the priesthood of Christ. This is going to be a theme here of the priesthood of Christ that will carry out all the way through the end of chapter 10. This is a massive portion of the book of Hebrews as a whole. From all the way in chapter 5, all the way throughout chapter 10. And the main point of our passage this morning is going to be found in verse 9. It says, In being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So this morning we're going to look at our great priest who is the author of eternal salvation. And before we dive into verse 1, let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this day and we're incredibly thankful for the opportunity to come into your presence and to be able to make these prayers and to be able to offer them up to you because we do have a great priest. We do have entry into your presence through him and through his work. God, I pray that as we look upon our priest this morning, that we would truly see uh, the incredible greatness and superiority of your son and the work that, that he fulfilled on the cross. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue here in the book of Hebrews, again, understanding some of this context and, and not belaboring all the context here for a long time, and, and I'm hopeful that we'll all endure through the smoke alarm beeping. Okay? Swap the battery out, but apparently the other battery was also not fully charged. So, perfect. But as we're going to look at this, we're, we're going to see so many truths about who Christ is, the person of Christ as a priest, and the incredible, um, the, the essential elements that Christ had to become our great high priest. So let's look at verses 1 through 4, starting off in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is also compassed with infirmity, and by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron." These first four verses are going to introduce the concept of what it is that a priest is supposed to do. Quite simply, what was the role of a priest? It was to bring men to God. It's to act as a mediator between man and God. And we see here that every priest is taken among men and is ordained for men. So, so a man was going to be chosen to be a priest to operate on behalf of man in relationship to God. Now, we'd look at this and say, okay, why, why does someone have to be brought to God? Why do we have to have a mediator? Why can't man simply just enter into the presence of God on his own? And quite simply, the answer is God is holy and man isn't. Our, our great sinfulness, our depravity, has caused that separation to where sinful man can't just walk up to an almighty, perfect, and holy God as if there has, there's no separation and there's no broken relationship. We can't just walk up to God and say, hey, I know, I'm, I know I'm unholy, I know I'm unrighteous, I know I'm sinful, but I'd really like to just sit down and to dwell with you. This isn't the case because Scripture makes it clear that we have to first be made righteous. Our sins first have to be forgiven. God is holy, He is transcendent, and by His nature, He is separated from sinners. But even more so, we are separated from God. This is, the, this is what is so important for us in our conversations about salvation. 
that when we're witnessing to an individual, it's so important to begin with the understanding that man is fallen, that we have sinful condition, that we do have great depravity without Christ. Because if we're to start with the assumption that, hey, you are a good person, then logically, what need is there for a Savior? What need is there for Christ? What need is there for His death or His resurrection? If I'm already good, and I'm already so loved by God, then I am in great shape, and any condemnation that you may mention is completely not necessary. It's not going to happen. It's imperative that we understand our sinful state before God apart from Christ. Here in the old system, God specifically appointed men to mediate. We, and we see the illustration here of, in verse 4 of Aaron. Aaron was chosen as a priest, and then we see the priesthood as it would be passed down. These men were divinely chosen to mediate between God and man. But this man would have to make first sacrifice for his own sins before he could help another. This seems like a very, very flawed system, does it not? That I Let's assume that I'm a priest and I say, okay, I'm going to mediate between you and God. But before I can offer up sacrifices and forgiveness of sins for you and help mediate in that relationship, i got to take care of myself first. This is like one of the ultimate, uh, be aware of what's in your own eye before you're talking about everybody else, right? That's the Chilson paraphrase. It's really laid back. Okay? But imagine this, how ridiculous it is that you're coming to a fallen, sinful person who says, before I can help you in your relationship with God, i got to go handle my own business because I've had a really bad week too. Priests were constantly having to not only forgive the sins of others in this way, to offer up sacrifices for them to be forgiven, but had to constantly be dealing with their own sinful state. This is why we see that there was no chairs anywhere in the temple, no chairs in the tent, couldn't sit down, constantly making sacrifices unto God because the work was never done. It's kind of like any household project that you have ever had. It's never done. No time to sit. You've got to keep going. This, it's so, this incredible weight that is upon not only the people, but these priests, the incredible burden that he first has to make a sacrifice for himself. And then in verse 4, it makes it clear, No man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. A person does not just designate or assign themselves this role of priest and mediator between God and man. There's no sense in anywhere throughout the Bible that a person is going to say, as if Aaron woke up one morning and said, you know what I want to do? I'm going to be the mediator between God and, and myself and all these people. I'm going to appoint myself the mediator to God. I'm going to be the one to offer up sacrifices for all these people to be made right with God. They are divinely appointed, specifically chosen for that purpose. And then here we arrive at the new covenant in Christ and all the old system has been done away with. There's now no need for any man to be appointed priest since God has divinely appointed one in Christ. Whereas instead of 24 different classes of priests in the old system, you're down to one person, Christ. That's it. And I'm pretty confident, and I hope you all agree, he will be much better at his job of mediating between God and man than Aaron was or any other priest was. Jesus Christ at his death and resurrection accomplished with all the sacrifices of bulls, goats, rams, lambs, anything else you could possibly have sacrificed had failed to do. Because it is his perfect sacrifice, as he talks about in Hebrews 10, which tore the veil, which made a path for man to enter in to heaven, opening a way to God. 
Look back at chapter 4, verse 16 here for a moment. It says, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come boldly under the throne of grace. This is not something that could have been done so easily as it is now in previous systems. It was such a long, arduous process that had to take place. But here we are, the, the opportunity to simply pray to God at any time that we're choosing. And yet, for many of us, it's very difficult to set aside this time. It's because we can do it so freely, and especially within our American culture, if it's easy, it, may not have, it doesn't have as much value as it does. Because, well, we can always do it, so it doesn't seem to be as valuable. Think about the things you value most. There's a limit to it. It's hard to get. It's hard to find. It means something special to you. Prayer at times is, well, I can always pray, so if I get distracted, that's okay. I can just come back and pray. Here, because of what Christ has done, we can freely offer up prayers to God. He is mediating these things, and the Spirit is mediating these things. And he's making it clear as he's building to this understanding of Jesus Christ as great priest, that he too is the Messiah. And the Jews struggled with this concept. The Jews had a very difficult time understanding the incarnation. Now, I know we can look at that and say, wow, what's so difficult about it? God becoming man, God becoming flesh. But like, stop for a minute and just think about that. That's very difficult for some of us to completely understand as well. A person apart from Christ has a very difficult time understanding not only how, but why would God ever want to become a man? And this is a question that I constantly ask myself as well. Hey, God, you knew what man was. Why would you ever want to become a man? Why would Jesus want to have the aches and pains, the struggles, the suffering, all of the things that he had to endure in becoming a man? And we're going to see this in these coming verses. But the people he was writing to could not understand why he would become flesh or have any reference for the Messiah having to suffer. Because the Messiah was supposed to come. He's going to come in, a great conqueror, a great hero. This military leader is going to come in. He's going to free us from oppression, and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be wonderful. The concept of a Messiah suffering was absolutely ludicrous in the Jewish context. Because... Why would he have to suffer? He's going to save us. We're the ones that are suffering. If this Christ is the Messiah, why is he suffering? Why isn't he just making everything right? Don't you remember all the questions that the Jews at the time were asking and all the things that they were tossing around as mockeries and insults? Hey, if you truly are the Messiah, if you truly are the Son of God, save yourself, save all of us, mocking him because they did not understand what it is that he came to do. So here the author of Hebrews is building up to this case, making it clear that the great priest was going to be divinely appointed, and that he was. That he doesn't take it up on himself, but he has been appointed it by God. Then we get into verse 5. It says, So also, in the same way as Aaron, Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. In this verse alone, he makes it clear that Christ did not glorify himself to, and elevate himself to the position of priest. This was not simply Christ saying, hey, Dad, um, I'd really like to be the great high priest if that's okay with you. This is God divinely appointing Christ to the task and Christ humbly submitting to the will of the Father and fulfilling and taking up this role. 
This is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 of the beginning of the Son. This is the inauguration. This is the affirmation of the divine appointment of great priest. He's building the case through verses 1 through 5 that Christ is qualified to be our priest and to become the source of eternal salvation. Why? Because he's the Son of God, and God himself is the one who made him qualified. What, was, what were Aaron's qualifications? He's not qualified to be a great high priest, to, to be the author of eternal salvation for us. Why? Because he was a fallen, sinful person. Why is Christ so distinct? Why is he superior? We're going to see these things. But God declared Christ the Son of God in power when he raised him from the dead. These are things that I think that we overlook so often in church, and I'm guilty of this myself, of, man, all the time I hear and I know and I understand that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and that he was raised from the dead. But every time I just kind of pass over that, I want to stop and say, do I think about what I just thought? Do I really reflect? Do I consider? Do I meditate upon that truth? That Christ was raised from the dead, like actually dead, not just for a few moments or a few hours. Days, three days, dead, being raised to life. This is where he's declared the Son of God in power, putting him and ascending at the right hand of the Father. All of these things that are taking place. Why? To become the author of eternal salvation, in verse 9, unto all them that obey him. The role of the priest was to mediate between God and man. And here we're seeing that Christ is the one that is superior in this. Because for many of them, it's, they think about priests and their first connection was to go back and say, Abraham, the Levitical priesthood, look at all these different lines. We know what you're talking about. And he's saying simply, yeah, Aaron was a good priest, sure. Christ is the superior, the great high priest. Moses, great prophet, great teacher, all of those things in chapter 3. But you know who's superior? Jesus Christ is superior. We, we can often do the, be guilty of the same things, and we can look back at people throughout church history and say, wow, what an incredible man of God, what incredible teachers, what incredible evangelists, what incredible fill-in-the-blank. But each and every one of those people we look back at fall short of the picture of Christ, of the perfection of Christ, of the superiority of Christ. They're simply men. And so going back to one of the first questions I asked is, why did God become a man? Quite simply, he had to in order to become our great high priest. Why would God, why would the Son of God leave perfect heaven, perfect harmony, perfect relationship, no suffering, no pain? Why would he leave all of that to come to earth, humbling himself to become a man? Why would he do that? That makes no sense logically for any one of us. None of us would trade that position. We have a very difficult time in our humanity ever going backwards in lifestyle, right? Once we've grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle, I'm not giving that up. I'm not going back to what it used to be. I refuse to do that. Now imagine exchanging all that heaven is, all that dwelling constantly with the Father is, to come into the form of man. To be tired. To, to be sorrowful. To suffer to feel the things that we do, but he did it so that he would understand, so that he would endure. John Calvin, in answering this question of why did God become a man, said it was necessary for Christ to become a real man. For as we are very far from God, we stand in a manner before him in the person of our priest, which we could not, which we could not be were he not one of us. 
hence that the Son of God has nature in common with us, does not diminish his dignity, but commends it the more for us, more to us, for he is fitted to reconcile us to God because he is man. So simply, the Son of God becoming man does not diminish his dignity, does not diminish his worth, his value, any of that. But it commends it to us because he is now fit to reconcile us to God because he is a man. Why didn't, why didn't Christ become an angel? He didn't come to save angels. Why didn't he come in the form of a dog or a cat? Well, we know why he's not a cat. Cats are horrible. But why did he come in the form of a man rather than anything else? Because he came to redeem man. It was absolutely essential that he came in the form of a man so that he would save man. Look back at verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is, also, is compassed with infirmity. He had to become a man in order to understand the afflictions of man and to feel compassion. Constantly in the Gospels, we see Christ moving, wandering throughout the crowds in his ministry and preaching and teaching and doing all the miracles. So frequently, especially in Matthew, we see him being moved with what? Compassion. Christ had actual, literal compassion upon the people because he knows what it's like to have suffered. He knows what it's like to have been hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired, to be tempted, to be tried. This is not simply of a savior or a priest who says, well, I have no idea what you're going through. I'm sure it's bad. I'll do what I can to help you. We have a great priest who sympathizes with us, who empathizes with us. He understood the human situation. He felt the things that humans feel. He can empathize with us. This is not just a person coming in and saying, well, I have no clue what you're, that you struggle with anything. I have no clue what temptation is like. I have no understanding of what suffering is like. But Christ endured all of those things, perfectly fulfilling it in obedience so that we are able to have a priest who empathizes with us. This is what Christ did. Does it mess with you a little bit that he went hungry at times, that he was tired? Does that mess up anybody else's mind? Because that to me is absolutely wild. Why would he exchange the glory of heaven for a human body, flesh that again is going to ache, banging his knee on something hard on the table. Right? All the different things that we endure as people, this is what he went through. In verse 6, it talks about, and the same in verse 10, about this eternal priesthood. So why is Christ's priesthood superior? Because there is no end. It's eternal, it's everlasting, it's going to last forever. Verse 6, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. An eternal priesthood. Giving all the description of Melchizedek would probably take a few weeks, but we're going to boil it down here for a minute. Um, he symbolizes in the Old Testament a priesthood which is different from that of Aaron, and the tribe of Levi. The, the background on him, uh, there is no, he has no beginning, he has no ending. It is a symbolic pointer to a priesthood which is going to be fulfilled and seen in Christ. We see this in Psalm 110, this idea of forever, of the priesthood of Christ lasting forever in this way. The same thing here in verse 5 or in verse 6. The priesthood of Christ is going to last forever. How long is forever? You guys can answer that. 
forever, right? We don't understand it because we say, wow, it feels like this is going on forever. Now imagine something actually being forever. It is never going to end. Some of us can go really far and we're really proud of ourselves and thinking about how long forever is. We're like, man, I'm really tracking with this right now. I'm getting really, really far. Oh, lost it. No understanding of these things. Forever is forever. This is an eternal priesthood. Was Aaron a priest forever? No. Christ is superior because his priesthood is going to be forever. Also, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. The same way that Christ is a priest and a king. Was Aaron a king? No, he was simply a priest. Simply here as he's writing to this, he's using examples that they would have looked up to and held as superior and quite simply saying, Aaron's good, Christ is better. Moses is good, Christ is better. They merely serve the one who is superior. Then we get into verse 7. Verses 7 through 9 kind of mess me up a lot in the past weeks whenever you look at this. It says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. This is something I keep consistently coming back to in any study, in any time of prayer, in any meditation, is quite simply the understanding that Christ suffered. Again, I, I think I mentioned it last week. I think I probably mentioned it once out of every last four weeks that I've been around. Every single week, I keep coming back to this understanding that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, suffered. This isn't a metaphor of saying, well, there were some rougher times in his life. There were things that came up. He actually suffered physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. The same ways that we suffer, he suffered. Again, he's our sympathetic and empathetic priest because he, too, suffered. Looking upon the crowds that, that's hungry, they're wandering. Why did he do the loaves and the fish? He knows what it's like to be hungry. He understands those things. He's moved with compassion, so he acts upon it. I want you to consider... And just think about these two words for a moment. Christ suffered. Just actually think about those words. Think about what that means. Think about the implications that Christ suffered. And not necessarily just that he did, but that he had to, and he did so willingly. Christ suffered. This is more than just being mocked. This is more than just being told, hey, you can't do that. This is more than him not being allowed to openly uh, to read from the scriptures while in a public setting. I understand in our context now we say we can look at suffering and say, well, what if my friends make fun of me because I'm a Christian? Or what if my coworkers make a joke because they know that I'm a Christian? That's, that's going to be a lot of suffering. Sure, but is that truly the suffering that we're really looking at is just being made fun of? Of just being looked at differently? The suffering that we see biblically is so much more than just, well, we're not going to engage with them as much. Or, hey, you can do that in private, but just don't bring the scriptures in a public place. This suffering was beaten. This was not being allowed in, in different communities at all. 
This is being killed, stoned, martyred. All the things that we know to be true. These are elements of suffering that we see frequently biblically. And I mention all the time, and it's just a good reminder for myself, is that I haven't truly suffered in many of the ways that Christians all over the world do. The stories that we see of constant suffering in so many places, and I go, wow. Of course it's easy for me to, to believe and to be, hold firm to these things, but when suffering comes, how is a person going to respond? Of pastors and missionaries all over the world where being a Christian means you are going to die. And yet so many people have no concern about running into these places because giving a Bible to an individual or speaking the name of Christ is more important than their own life. Why? Because it's something greater than themselves. It's not just a good idea. This isn't just a, hey, I know I'm probably going to die for this, but I really want you to just try Jesus out. I just want you to give it a shot. It's a really cool thing that, that they're doing around here. This is going to actually change your life. Why? Because it is the perfect, sinless Son of God who died on a cross, taking away your sins, offering eternal life, being the author of eternal salvation. How did Christ suffer? Not just emotionally, not just mentally and spiritually, but yes, also physically. We do see him being beaten. We see him being mocked. We see him being flogged. We see him bleeding. We see his body being broken. And all of these things, not only to offer salvation, but to become our great high priest, becoming the lamb who is going to be slain and taking away the sins of the world, being cast out into darkness, taking away, removing the sins incredibly far away from us, being the one who not only died and conquered sin and death, but is raised from the dead, becoming the author of salvation for those who would believe and obey. It is absolutely wild to me that in God's divine plan for redemption, that his son would have to suffer. It is absolutely wild to me, and not just suffer because he wanted to, but because he had to. And who did he suffer for? Was it just for the sake of suffering? No. But yet he suffered and bled and died for all that would believe in him. In verse 7, it tells us what it is that he's praying over. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Here we see our great priest again offering prayers to God. So there we see this incredible example of him when in times of being distraught, in times of struggle, in times of suffering, and all of these things, times of weakness, offering up prayers and supplications to God. Christ was firmly rooted in prayer. We see him constantly praying. And not just this, this sweeping, passing understanding of prayer of, well, I'm going to pray real quickly and move on. He needed to pray. He needed to be in a place dwelling with the Father. And here when it says, um, the one who could save him out of death, this is not Christ praying so that he would not die. This is not, Lord, deliver me from dying. This is not him being afraid of death. This is not him being so weak that he could not ever, that he didn't want to uh, be injured by the Romans, that he didn't want to die. He was willing to die. The word here is more of a, a drawing out. This is an out of, the same way that we get the word ecclesia, of being out of. The one who could deliver him and could save him out of death. He's not praying, Lord, 
Please do not allow me to die. Save me from this death. But simply, Lord, bring me out of death. He's praying for the resurrection here. Lord, you can deliver me out of death. And I've heard this explained so many different ways that he was so scared about the punishment that was going to be falling upon him and that, that he was afraid. And I've even heard this text of, and was heard, and that he feared, that he feared death in some way. That our Savior was afraid of death, that he was afraid of punishment. And to me, that holds such a low view of what Christ did and his willingness to die, his submission to the will of the Father in dying in this way. Looking at the word fear here is not the one that we, where we get phobia, but it's for reverence. The understanding of submission, of reverence. He had great reverence to the Father. talks about willful submission when you study out this word. Christ was in no way afraid of death, but willingly submitted to death, knowing that he would be raised from the dead, conquering sin and death for all who would come to faith and believing in him. He knows that this is why he was begotten. He knows that this is why he was born. Born to die, to be the lamb that would be slain, to take away the sins, but yet he still did so willingly and perfectly, fulfilling all areas of obedience. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He was already a son. This wasn't done to, to attain any inheritance. This wasn't done to earn favor. Christ was already a son from the very beginning, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ was made perfect through his suffering. Look maybe just a page back in Hebrews chapter 2 at verses 8 and 9. It says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was absolutely critical that he would suffer. This is where he was made perfect in his obedience through the suffering and fulfilling in all the areas that we fail. I don't think it's a stretch to say that we fail in, in perfect obedience. I feel very comfortable in saying that we frequently fail in perfect obedience. And this is what is so beautiful about salvation, about Christ being the author of salvation, is that we do not author it ourselves. We do not set the parameters. We are not the ones who have to fulfill each and everything perfectly because it's been very clear in Scripture. You absolutely cannot do that. But Christ has fulfilled all of these things and, and then it is through His being made perfect and through His righteousness that we can enter into heaven. I love verse 9, that he is the author of our eternal salvation. How long is salvation? It is forever. It is not temporary. It is eternal. It is everlasting. The same way that his, his priesthood is eternal, so too is our salvation. 
When I think about all these things, I think it's so crazy to me that when you look upon the person and work of Christ and what it is that he did and, and the nature and character of God and being so gracious and so loving and having such an incredible amount of mercy that he would do all of these things that's just described, where, where, Christ is, where we see the author of salvation and Christ mediating now between God and man so that we can simply enter into his presence. We don't need a priest to mediate for us. That, that's a human priest. And this is one of the great distinctions from the Catholic Church, that there is no, there's no need for it. Why? Scripture's made it very, very clear that Christ is our priest. It's not a pope. It's not a person that we vote upon. Christ is our priest. He's the only priest that we need. In verse 7, we see this incredible example of prayer as part of Christ's life. In the days of his flesh, he had offered up prayers and supplications and strong ones, right? Strong crying and tears unto God. I was reminded of a quote from Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers that we've ever had, the prince of preachers, an incredible orator, incredible gifted speaker of the word, who said, I'd rather have teach one person to pray than ten to preach. This is an incredible, gifted preacher. Again, one of the best that we've ever had throughout all of church history, who is saying, I'd rather teach one man to pray than to teach ten to preach. Now, now is he saying preaching is not important? Absolutely not. But what's the point of preaching if you're not going to pray? What's the point of being able to exposit and to be able to draw out simple truths, but yet not being a person intimately devoted to prayer? It's an incredible thing that I look back at my school time, especially in undergrad, and Brittany could probably testify to this too, but you're going through your youth ministry classes, and the large majority of assignments for people that a school is training up to work in ministry, so many of the assignments are, how are you going to grow the church? How are you going to grow the ministry? What strategies are you going to use? What programs are you going to do to, to attain this church growth? All of these different things, but yet none of the assignments are, who is God? It, it was an incredible thing that at the time I didn't quite realize, but so much of it is, well, how are you going to implement small groups? How are you going to do these different activities and outreach and evangelism? All these different things as opposed to how are you going to show who God is and how are you going to know who God is for yourself? So much of the ministry training I had received in my life was church growth structures and plans and all of these other things. But yet, biblically, all we see constantly being, being talked about, being promoted, is the understanding of growing in maturity, of knowing who God is. And how can we ever expect to be able to tell someone who God is if we simply don't know who He is? We can attract people and, and fill churches all over the country, and there are plenty of places that can do that. It's really not difficult to get a large group of people to show up somewhere, is it? You just offer something free. Okay? We could just offer free stuff. Usually, if it's a free t-shirt, I'll probably go just about anywhere for it. I'm cheap. There's so many ways that you can do that, but what are you really offering a person? Are we offering them the place and an understanding of who God is? Are we, are we showing who Christ is and what it is that he's done? Or are we trying to entertain? Are we trying to do other things? Here we see from this text that we have a great priest 
who understands what we go through, who has suffered, we cannot say, well, God, you don't understand what it's like to suffer. He understands what it's like to suffer. We can't say, well, I, I didn't know that you, you've done this. This is why he's given us his word, and I, I'm incredibly thankful for this. I'm incredibly thankful that we have a priest so that we don't have to go through all of this weightiness of trying to understand, oh, have we been forgiven of this sin today? Are my hands clean? Did, did, I, did I ask for forgiveness for this specific thing? If not, I'll never, never enter into the dwelling place of God. But Christ has made that way. And again, he's the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. What does he ask for us to repent and to believe upon him? Turning away from our sins, believing upon his finished work, the one perfect sacrifice for all time. And through that, we receive eternal salvation. And the greatest thing about that is not that we're going to get a, a, a nice place to live. It's, it's not that we're going to be walking around in this incredible, beautiful place. It's that we receive Christ. We have Christ. We see him. We see him the way that he ought to be seen in all of his glory, face to face with our Lord and with our Savior. That's why it's heaven, because God is there, not just because there's some fun things and it's beautiful things. It's beautiful because God is there. That's why it's beautiful. Would you still enjoy heaven if God was not there? Absolutely not. It wouldn't be heaven then. And this is what we have to look forward to because of our priest. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for for making a way to you, for providing salvation and redemption for those who would believe upon you, who would repent of sins, understanding that, that we are sinful and that we, we fail to meet your righteous and perfect and holy standard. But as we continue on, we understand that salvation and redemption is made possible because of the sacrifice of your son, because of his incredible accomplished work on the cross, all that he did, the, the fact that he was made perfect through the suffering and that he fulfilled in all areas where we failed. He fulfilled with perfect obedience. And that as we receive him, that we exchange our, our sinfulness for his righteousness and that we're able to enter into heaven. We're able to enter into your dwelling place and to be able to see just a glimpse of your glory here while on this earth, and we eagerly await the day that we do get to see you face to face. And God, for, for the time that we are here, I pray that, that we would do all that we can to, to plant seeds of the gospel truth, to be willing to, to share the gospel with those who, who do not know who you are, and that we would be bold in doing so, and that we wouldn't make concessions to make it sound more palatable or to be more appealing to the ear, but that we would truly speak the truth of, of man's sinfulness and your perfect holiness and your, your work on the cross. God, we thank you and we rejoice in salvation this morning. We rejoice in who you are and we rejoice that you've appointed Christ our great high priest, constantly making intercession for us with you. God, I pray that as we leave today, that we would continue to see all that you are, that we would continue to 
see who you are, and that for each and every one of us, that we would grow in our desire to know you and to know you more. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, just in this moment, taking a moment to reflect upon Christ as our priest, that the intercession that he makes for us, the, the work that was fulfilled in order for that to be true.